one chaotic time just because, you know, you, I didn't know where I was going to sleep. I was sometimes sleep on a train. Sometimes it would be with a woman I didn't like that much, but she had a place. <laughs> I, have, I have met... Oh, you never fucked for shelter before? <laughs> you want to judge me like that, New Yorker audience? Fuck out of here. Oh, you didn't like her? Hey, it's New York City. You got to do something sometimes. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus. I want to give a shout out up top to Lady Rizzo, who composed that gorgeous song, Ink Dip, um, which is our theme song. And you can also listen to her entire album, Lady Rizzo, if you listen on Spotify or cassette tape. However it is you enjoy your music, definitely check out more of Lady Rizzo. Um, She's also been on Employee of the Month. You can listen to our back interviews as well as her and Zadie Smith singing. And on today's episode, we have Hannibal Burris and Marina Franklin. I needed some comedy. You deserve some comedy. And that is what you will get. Hannibal Burris is best known as a stand-up. He also is the one who called out Bill Cosby, which set off an entire investigation. It is very sad to me that it took so long for people to listen since people for decades had been trying to say there's a problem here. We spoke about that. We also spoke about the movies that he's been in. And you, of course, may recognize Hannibal from Broad City, SNL, 30 Rock, and The Eric Andre Show as well. And on this episode, we have Marina Franklin, who is a comedian I have loved for years. And you can check out her podcast, which I highly recommend, Friends Like Us. Her album, Single Black Female, is also out. And you may recognize her from Crashing on HBO or the movie Trainwreck. Let's start with Hannibal. This interview was recorded live at the Gramercy Theater. Enjoy. What's up? How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm really thrilled you're here. I'm um, glad to be. I shot my first special here. That, that's right, at Gramercy Theater. Yeah, Animal Furnace. Because uh, that's I named it Animal Furnace because it's a, it poorly rhymes with Hannibal Burris. <laughs> I live with it forever. And that's why you now get cast sometimes as insects and yeah animals. Yeah, I was a bee. Yeah. It's me every time. I'm, I'm always surprised when I get more acting work. Well, I'm more surprised when they ask me to audition because it's like, yo, I got, I got nothing else. <laughs> Whatever you see me do, that's it. It's me as a dentist, me as a bird, me as a bee, me as a handyman. Me is me every time. Same dude, different costume. That's my acting <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> So I am a devotee of your podcast, A Handsome Rambler. Thank you. And on it, um, I was listening, hearing you talk about when you first were starting out, you chose to not uh, live with your sister anymore, and you were going on the subways and um, Also, I didn't choose that. (laughs) What happened is that I was 23 at the time. It was in 2006, and I was just obnoxious, and my sister lived here. Yeah, I was super obnoxious, and I was just, sometimes you just kind of get really focused on your own dreams that you don't, you don't care about other people and their comfort. So my sister lived here, and uh, I just popped up, like, hey, what's up? I got $300 in dreams. I live here too now. <laughs> and then I stayed at her place, but I was an uninvited guest. I just popped up. Because yeah, I was like, if I just pop up, she can't say no. 
She even she even missed a flight to make sure that you didn't get back she in. She missed house. a flight. Yeah. Can you want to tell that story about how like she didn't want to let you back in because of your self focus? We'll call it. Well, you just told the end of the story. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you do stand up and I stopped. <laughs> but yeah, it would be uh it was interesting, crack like being in New York. It was a fun, chaotic time just because, you know, you I didn't know where I was gonna sleep. I was sometimes sleep on a train, sometimes it would be with a woman I didn't like that much, but she had a place. <laughs> I have I have met Oh you never fucked for shelter before? <laughs> you want to judge me like that, New Yorker audience? Fuck out of here. Oh, you didn't like her? Hey, it's New York City. You got to do something sometimes. But the New York audience was your, your core audience here. Um, I no, I'm want... talking about, I didn't mean New York audience. This is a... Uh, I thought you meant the New Yorker. This is a New Yorker. This is yeah. New Yorker I, I know. I'm a NPR, fan. like Terry Gross t-shirt type yeah. crap. <laughs> you got us. One of the things that I was so taken by was your interview with Chris Rock and hearing how at SNL, I, I just wanted to hear about your experience with him after he told his story about how Eddie Murphy helped him in Tim Meadows. Well, when I, I, I wrote on SNL for one season, 2009, 2010, and I, uh, I met Chris Rock and I talked to him and he just told me to try to get on camera because I was just writing and I wasn't really getting sketches on. So he said, try to get on camera, which is a pretty ballsy request for somebody that's not getting any material on the show. He's like, no, you should just try to. And I, and I asked Seth Myers, uh, I said, I want to try to be on camera. I had I set a meeting with him and everything. And he said, all right. And I, I tried to get on camera. I did this piece for Weekend Update where I acted like a, we framed one of my stand-up jokes as, one, as uh, me acting like a, financial advisor but it was yeah. just me doing doing bits on how to get the most out of your money like when I rent a car I make sure I use all the windshield wiper fluid <laughs> <laughs> and just different practical advice like that <laughs> and we did we tried it out it went okay but I uh, got cut at dress rehearsal it happens. She's fine. It's He's okay. Fine. <laughs> yeah, it's all right. It's all right. But yeah. I, I thought it was fascinating to hear how like Eddie Murphy took both Tim Meadows and Chris Rock out to lunch and like really looked after them, yeah. and and it felt like he was trying to do the same with you. No, uh, Chris has been. He gives me a lot of good advice. He's a he's a great mentor to have. Yeah. And so now, how are you mentoring other people? Oh, I tell them to get out of show business. <laughs> Like, oh, it's terrible, man. You're going to change and everything is going to be terrible. Is that true? <laughs> no. But your life will shift in a different way. Uh, but yeah, no, it's not terrible. But there's, I, I, uh, I figure out ways to, to give myself a boost. You got an ad blocker on your computer? I don't even know my password. You don't know? I, I, you got to get an ad blocker. So, you know, when you watch stuff, it yeah. won't. But lately... Different websites and video sites, when they have a, if you have an ad blocker, they say, we get our money from ad revenue. Can you please turn the ads on? And by myself, I say, no. <laughs> and that gets me going for the day. So then how do you deal with that when you have to do like ads on your podcast? Oh, well, my podcast, well, 
I guess you don't have to. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't have to, but we had some going. And so I didn't, sometimes the podcast, they'll give you the ad copy where you say, Oh, you like these, man? You like mattresses? Your mattress sucks. Get a better mattress. We got a way better mattress. Use Hannibal dot 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 and you get $20 off your mattress. You get a deal, even though we're still going to make a great profit off of this shit. But we say you're saving money just so you feel better. Uh, so yeah, they have those reads that you do, but the, the advertising revenue for my podcast wasn't enough for me to just read that scripted. I'm like, y'all not, I don't, I don't need this like that. So it started getting boring. So I was just started rapping the ads and making up different songs and just freestyling them. And, and, uh, yeah. So for my mattress ads, I'd be like, Hey, you, you like fucking, right? <laughs> you want to fuck comfortably? Well, get this. And so it was just more, I just kind of dare them to drop me. Uh, and they have, they have, yeah. <laughs> so this is a perfect segue. Um, you had a hilarious joke in your podcast about how coming out about Cosby had led to you getting a lot of great sex, consensual sex across the country. So I was curious if like coming out and telling these jokes about Cosby, if that really did lead to a lot more consensual sex, as you said in the joke, if that was... I, don't I was having a lot before that, too. <laughs> 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 it's uh you know the arts katie <laughs> the arts uh it's just a fantastic place and it's lots of just free spirits and alcohol and especially when you do it in a late night city like new york city spontaneous, amazing things can happen with strangers all of the time. And I try to embrace those situations responsibly. <laughs> and I know that you said that, like, you didn't mean for the whole thing to yeah. happen. But do you feel, because you did help bring attention to a very serious issue uh -huh. about sexual assault, do you feel more inspired now to be more active socially or more socially? Absolutely not. Okay. It's all about me and my family and my shit and everybody else. The world's going to burn soon anyway. So stockpile your bottled water and your grains, and that's all I got for you. On that note, can I... Hashtag time's up. And I did want to ask, because you also talked a lot on your podcast about having a white audience for a long time. When yeah. did you feel like you crossed over to, to finally have everyone? It's not there yet. Uh, but yeah, I feel like it's just... Uh, there's a difference between um, the people who are aware of me and know me and the people that actually will spend money to come see me talk for an hour. So, yeah, that's that. So I, I'm appreciative of anybody that just supports my work and, and allow me to live this weird lifestyle that I live. Why did you choose to move back to Chicago instead of like L.A.? Because you were living in New York for a while. I moved back to Chicago. It's less famous people for competition. Okay. Is this really me and John Cusack and... <laughs> How many siblings are there in that family? And, there's uh, Joan, John. I think there's uh, another sure. sister, like Saban. I just added that. <laughs> I also was curious, you had spoken about reading a lot of business books, like Dale Carnegie and things like that. Are there any books you're reading now that have helped you business-wise? I I, I, this, this book uh, is this guy, Gary Vaynerchuk. He's a super, he's a very energized guy. He has a book crushing it. 
and is he's a he's a he's an interesting dude. He posts on all of the social medias about eight times a day on everything. How are and you he's on in his all the 40s. He's in his 40s and he even does Snapchat. Wait a minute. How do you find him on Snapchat? I found, well, I don't watch, I don't follow him on Snapchat. It's overwhelming. But how, how are you on eight social medias in one day? Like, how do you find time to eat? How am I or him? Yeah, you. Well, if you know that he's on eight social medias, I assume I that's because you are. I know I'm not, I'm not watching everything. I had a life of my own. This goddamn Angry Birds sequel ain't going to voice itself. <laughs> um, um, Broad City, did you start out at the same time as Alana and Abby started out? Start doing stand-up? Yeah. Well, I started stand-up in, in Chicago. Life. I yeah, met them uh, here. I think I met them years back at some... It was... Uh, either open mic or a showcase at uh, Parkside Lounge. On, oh, yeah. That's on that. Houston. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. It's on Houston. Yeah. You're correct. People need to know the exact address. And, um, and so... Uh, Eldridge? I'll, Please let them know attorney. the exact address. I like to just... Thank you. I like to, I like to say streets just to show my authenticity. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I, I don't, you don't get upset when movies and television fuck up streets. Sometimes they'll do that in Chicago, and yeah. they'll, they'll be like, this 1999 West Austin. I'm like, that street doesn't go that direction. Fuck this show. Yes, I do. So, Abby and Alana, I uh, <laughs> met, yeah, years back, and then uh, they started doing Broad City as a web series. Yeah. And they asked me to play a role in the web series, and I did it. It was fun, and then they got a deal to uh, do a pilot for, it was FX originally, and they asked me to be in the pilot, and uh, then it became a TV show. And so are, even though you broke up with Alana on the show, are you coming back if they're, for the next season? Yeah, I am. And how will you, what will you be? Viacom that? wouldn't have it any other way. The Viacom oh, so overlords. You, did you want out? <laughs> no, no I, I enjoy it. I do enjoy it. Uh, we got back together. You didn't see that shit? I haven't seen it yet. Yeah, catch up. I know. Spoilers. <laughs> Sorry, I watched it. Season finale was months ago. What's the what's He's the like statute of limitations on this spoiler alert shit? Cause I say a couple months, then you got to get your months. shit together. Somebody, you spoiled weeds for me. It's weeds. <laughs> shit gets weird at the end, and you just watch a show that you once loved crumble under itself. <laughs> There's only a few. There's only a few people that really watched Weeds all the way yeah. to the end, but they they appreciated they that got bit. That joke. They were like, "Yeah, that shit really fully, jumped the shark." Finally, I didn't know when I woke up this morning, somebody was gonna talk about Weeds in front of me. And they finally did. They're like, "Yeah, that's you're welcome." My band really wanted to um, rap with you. What do y'all want to do? Do you want to rap? What do y'all want? Let's, uh, okay. So, Let's. Hannibal has many careers, and his um, other career that a lot of people may not know about yet, because it's the New Yorker crowd, and they've been very busy catching yeah. up on Weeds and Broad City, um, is that Hannibal can also rap. I wouldn't call that a career. Hobby. Because, yeah, it's a hobby, because I don't... Hannibal can do karaoke, and this is as close as we could get. How's yeah. that? 
I don't make money from rap, so you can't call it a career. I, I agree with you. Yeah, it's a it's a vocation. That's how most journalists feel about what they do as well. Yeah, and I'm sorry. It's a hobby. And, but I'm sorry, journalists, that you don't get paid what you deserve. But I still won't turn off my ad blocker. <laughs> Okay. Well, yeah, what, you, what, what if we just uh, right. gave you a topic and you uh, gave us no, a, little, a little freestyle? Or what? No, you can't. I'm not. Hold on. Stop real quick. Or you can just. One second. This is an unplanned thing. We're just bringing this on the board, guy. Because they try to do that. Sometimes when people freestyle, they just say, give me a topic. I'm so good at freestyling. I can talk about, I can rap about anything. And he was like, what about we give you a topic? I'm like, well, I don't want to get caught up. You might say some shit about something I don't know anything about. Nah, the freestyle. Condoms. I got a freestyle about Lord's last album. <laughs> I don't know much about it. She seems very genuine in her interviews. That's all I got. Okay. Yeah. Can, uh, and give me some some angelic something angelic on the keys. Yeah. Okay. That's it. Oh, that's. Katie Lazarus up on his couch. I'm not gonna stand on the couch like a Dave Chappelle sketch. I punch you in the face and I say, ouch, don't hit me cause I can't fight. I'm only in New York for tonight. Used to live here, but the shit is all crowded. The shit is all loud. The shit is very retarded. Oh shit, somebody's filming me. They gonna put me on Twitter and say he said retarded. Oh, he said retarded. Let's take all of his money from him. He must be a bad person. Let's just judge him for this moment. Take it out of context and get our shit popping. Then they'll get their clickbait. Shit, mate, you got your clickbait. Just wrote a dumb article to get that shit going. Why don't you really? All right, never mind. All right. Hannibal Burris. I know that you have to go to work and you have to go do a stand-up gig, so I'm, I'm psyched that you're here. Thank um, you. This Park Slope co-op bag will surely get you oh. a lot of sex. All right, Park Slope. You got this a Buddha? Is, this is a Buddha since I knew that you had quit drinking for a little bit, so you can just meditate instead awesome. every time. And then I wanted to share, I know you like sports, so I'm really delighted that the author of these two books brought these. This is the new new release. Gary yeah. Belsky and Neil Fine. This is Up Your Game. All right. Skills, tips, and strategies to achieve total sports mastery. And I love this one because it's Sports just... mastery? Let me go to page. <laughs> Give me a page number to go to. Now I'll read what's on there. I was pointing at her. He's trying to get laid. He's... <laughs> I'm not trying, listen, don't make it okay. about that, even oh. though I made it partially about that. <laughs> or fully. Or but she fully. was just, it was just, I pointed directly at her. I feel like I was clear. No disrespect. <laughs> what you say, lady? 88. Sound like you know what you're talking about. Tennis edition. Three topics up for, for discussion. Pay parity. As a, what a, oh, pay parity. Match fixing. Oh, yeah, the match fixing is feeling. Okay. You been to the U.S. Open before? Yes, I have. I, sn I snuck in as a kid. You snuck in? I went. Yeah. It's uh, just, you have to dress nicely, and then, and, um, although you can't do it now. Post 9-11, you can't do that stuff anymore. Yeah? Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> but you can afford a ticket, so it's fine. I went uh, 
a year, two years ago I went. I love the U.S. Open. It was weird. Well, it's so many uh, tennis courts out there. You get lost. In Queens. Yeah. It's the, the whole park. It, it, and so I, I went to the wrong entrance. And then this, uh, I'm going in there. This and better be an amazing story. <laughs> Because, like, who doesn't get lost going to, like, a major sports event? Yeah, I mean, yeah, it'll be a fun story. Okay. It'll be a fun story if you don't cut me off at the climax of it. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, it's a really long story, and it ends with me slapping a guy, so I'm not going to tell it. This is on the origin of sports, which was their first New York Times bestseller. Nice. I did. I also. Gary Belsky is the author. Neil Fine. Yeah. Shut up. Neil Fine in the building. Gary Belsky is. Gary Belsky. Gary Belsky is in the building. Yeah. What's Thank up, you. Gary? We can't. We can't see you anyway. <laughs> That'll be great for the audio for the podcast audience. Yeah. To know where Gary is. Did you do an audio book for this? <laughs> I'll do, I'll do a, I'll try one just to see if I want to. (laughs) Field hockey. Many of the sports dealt with herein migrated from England in the middle of the 19th century. Field hockey is one of them. The game's specific origins are difficult to pin down, but it's rapid international spread from the earliest codification of his rules in 1875 to its inclusion in the Summer Olympics in 1908 is a direct result of the unmatched reach of the British Empire. All right. After routing Napoleon's France in 1815, Great Britain stood as the world's sole superpower. Shit, yeah. They had a good run back then. How'd you? Hannibal, you gotta go to work. I'm fine. I see the clock. I know exactly when I gotta go. (laughs) You were complaining before we did the show that you're like, make sure I'm out in time. Make sure I'm out in time. Yeah, that was before, but yeah, I had to to set boundaries. Okay. (laughs) He has nothing tonight. What else you got? Okay, this is from Factory. So this is um, a great flapjack for your computer. Do you write with a notebook or do you write with a computer? Uh, I write with a both. computer and notebook, yeah. That's so you don't get it dirty. Yeah, because with... my fucking keys are disgusting. I know, I figured. And they're going to be more disgusting when you eat this delicious babka from Russ and Daughters. I think you're hilarious, and I've always been a fan of you personally, and so I'm really hoping that you have much more success professionally, although I'm not very worried about it. Thank you. Do you want to stay here for Emily's interview, too? I have to go. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was pretty hilarious. Uh, Ready for some more chuckles, guffaws, laughs, LOL, LOLZs. Coming up, Marina Franklin. Marina Franklin, welcome to Employee of the Month. Thank you so much for having me, Katie. I'm so excited. I am excited because I love you and I haven't seen you in a long time. And this is a good way to reconnect. I know. This makes me really, it's so, I think this may actually just become that for me. It's like, how can I see all the stand ups I miss now that I don't perform stand up anymore? Because you, oh, wait, you saw me in this top. Yeah. Again, I did at the Writers Guild the, party. Oh, no. I've seen you twice in the <laughs> same outfit. It just hit me. 
I love that outfit. You're, we have to describe for you know podcast listeners that you're wearing a leopard top that it has the shoulders bare. Yeah, the shoulders bare. Very it's, risque um, silk. Yeah, and it has got a nice deep V line. And it Is reminds me of a called? joke you have about not only being a tiger, a no, no, uh, not only being a cougar, but being a black panther. Yeah, because <laughs> I date young white boys. <laughs> Yes. Although right now you are uh, dating another male comedian, which, which you've done yeah. before. What is it like, just out of curiosity, like now we've failed the Bechdel test. I have failed the Bechdel test, which is when <laughs> women talk about men in film. <laughs> but we're doing it on audio, so we'll it's give it a, a, new, okay. a new test. I do it in my set. Yeah, I try to get serious, it's and then it's always about dating. Why? Love is an important Well, your friends work. get tired of listening to you, but you can trap the audience <laughs> into listening, so it's great. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I tell them that too. I'm like, but I have you. <laughs> but it does seem envious to me on the outside to like date someone who's as funny or maybe as funny. Who said he was asked? Yeah, but I, I will say, it's no, just dreaming. He's very dreaming. funny. It's it is interesting. I mean, you know, I have dated a number of comedians. I just never really think about it. It's like uh, usually the ones that I've dated, it's honestly because I just liked them and they liked me and we got along and it just worked. And why not? Yeah. You know, I, if you sit, set like a – if it's an office place, that's a different situation. But these are usually comics that were either – yeah, they were either working in a different scene than I was too. They Got weren't it. like on the same circuit. Scene. Yeah, and younger. So, yeah. You know, like t- uh, two of them, one was from Jersey and the other one was from um, – well, he's from New York. But he was a younger comic that would wasn't nowhere near – doing the clubs that I was doing. As successful. Even that too, yeah. <laughs> He's gotten better, I think. <laughs> All right, so is, how is that different from men who date sort of younger women who aren't as successful in the business? I think it sh- there shouldn't be a difference, but okay. it is different because uh, a guy has to look deep within himself to accept that a woman is better than him. I see, I see, yeah. I see, I see. Where And not to make it a uh, competition. Totally. Yeah, a man has to do that. Women, we, you know, it's funny because I never think I'm competing with the guy I'm dating. Yeah. Even if he's a comedian that's better than me, I never think I'm competing with him. I'm so happy for him being good. Yes. But I have spoken to certain male comedians, you know, who've said to me they couldn't handle it because of exactly that point of the woman being funnier or getting better. And it's like, what? I don't even get that. I don't know what that's about. But that's why we're so different as we're seeing and finding out you mentioned before it's like not an office and yet at the same time we're also seeing how like the lack of boundaries i don't know how different it i mean or let me ask you how different do you think it is since our office is sort of like uh not just the clubs but like going on tour with people so it includes everything from like hotel rooms to like sharing you know what i mean car rides and late nights and yeah the lines are blurred You know, and so that's why part of the conversation that's happening now is really helping for those those lines to not be so blurred. You know, now when you have guys going, is it okay if I hug you or is this okay? It's like, you know what? Maybe that's what needed to happen a long time ago. Oh, it needed to happen a long time ago. But I I still I'm look, I'm so thrilled that women are coming forward and that grief is um, coming out. And I'm hoping that that will lead to the conversation shifting from guys asking, is that okay, Mm -hmm. to guys um, asking themselves first, 
Is that okay? Well, they don't know. That's what we're finding out. They, re- I they mean, really I've taught. I've actually had conversations with very smart men who are, you know, extreme liberals or, you know, just at least in how they voted. Yeah, <laughs> and they're but they and they're good people. Yeah, they're the really good people, and they characterize sensational. But still, when it comes to me, have said some very inappropriate things. Oh, completely. So that leads me to believe that all men, a large portion of them, don't understand part of this conversation. I mean, but that's absolutely true. And I wanted to hear about your experience with that as well. Well, in the scene, you know, as I guess a black woman coming up in the scene like I did, you know, one of the things I started to look back at was that, you know, how I wanted to maintain respect and get respect based on my talent. Yes, Totally. It was so important. But I also understood that I had to do that first. There was something in me that was very clear that if you don't have them respect you, you're not doing this right. That was part of my yes. my journey. That was part of my process. As a comedian. As a, as a black female comedian. As a black female comedian. You had to understand that. Like for me, like I look at how Amy Schumer owns her sexuality on stage. I envy it. I envy it too, but she was always that way. So was like, she? yeah, I mean, you were already quite successful when we started. And when I say when we started, I mean, Amy had been doing acting for a long time. Mm-hmm. But in terms of comedy, in terms of stand-up, you'd already made it. You'd already been on shows. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. uh, Jay Leno and things like that. Mm-hmm. Or The Tonight Show. I don't know what to call it. Yeah, they were. The, that was the transition between... They didn't want Conan really being there. So Jay Leno <laughs> came back with the Jay Leno show to kind of say, hey, we're still here. But you'd, you know what I mean? You'd yeah. already like had those marks and you were already at the cellar. Like when I first started, um, the way I dressed, I didn't own anything. I didn't have an owning of sexuality on stage. I was more of nervous of, of putting forth any sexuality on stage because I really thought they would never uh, respect me. And that was my own issue, obviously. That's, you know, not every woman's issue. Yeah, but, but when I started in stand-up, I had the same thing. I used to wear tons of dresses. And then when I started in stand-up, it was told, I was either told I wasn't fuckable enough or I was too fuckable or whatever it was, whatever I was doing, whatever I was wearing was the wrong thing. And so I went through this phase, too, of, like, what do I wear on stage? Should I wear, like, jeans and sneakers the way that, like, I had seen, like, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Sarah Silverman, you know? Or should I wear what I usually wear, which is dresses, or should I wear a double-breasted suit like Paula Poundstone? Yeah, yes. Now, I had a guy comic tell me that every comic goes through this. Oh, okay. He tried to equate it with what I was saying, like— so well, you and Mike Berbiglia had the exact same experience. I guess, yeah. You know, Mike had to wear overalls for whatever amount of years before he let his sexuality out. But I definitely felt like someone trying to equate their experience as a man to mine was not listening again. And that was what the point I was telling him was like, you guys don't really hear us. Me being sexual is not the same thing as you talking about what type of comic you want to be on stage. Well, and also for white men particularly, like their only shot at television is not on a show that's called Herlicious or um, Women Who Kill or... Men in spiked gym <laughs> shoes. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're automatically typecast as a woman. You're automatically typecast as a person of color. Then you're automatically cloyingly not allowed to like belong to both groups since people always, like I just did, say people of color and women. Yeah. And you're like, hi, where do I fit in? Yeah, what's happening? 
That's so confusing. It's not going to be a white Christmas. Tell me a little bit about your upbringing. So I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, where I was born, where Marina Franklin was born. It was actually on the south side of Chicago at Michael Reese Hospital, which is no longer there. I think they, that place is gone. After you were born, actually, they got rid of it. <laughs> yeah, I did something. And then we moved right away, like maybe... You know, while I was a baby, we moved to the south suburbs, no, the north suburbs of Chicago, which is Highland Park, which is predominantly white, actually Jewish neighborhood where I grew up until I was about nine years old. And then at nine, we moved to the south side of Chicago. Wow. What was that transition like? Horrifying. It was most of my act in the first yeah. 10 years of my career of doing stand-up. Because, and I, you know, it's funny because you just do material that's biographical, but you don't realize as you start working on the material how psychologically traumatic those experiences yes. were. So, you know, yeah, you, you don't go from the Highland Park area of Illinois and then move to the south side of Chicago where it's not middle class, it's lower, and be okay. It was tough because it was like, you know. Why did your family move? Well, there's my dad lost his job and my mom wasn't working and they were getting a divorce at the same time. Wow. So all that was happening. My mother's her mom just passed. I mean, it was it was on a level of trauma for them. You know, you talk about me. So all that was going on at the same time. They didn't have time to go. Marina, are you OK with this move? So totally. trauma was going on with them. That was kind of, you know downloading onto me in the way that let's they didn't know that you know if i had a child and took them from a, a upper you know wealthy neighborhood to a lower middle class neighborhood in chicago even today if i tell anyone that i went to dixon on the south side of chicago they go "Ooh, are you i'm sorry they say that to me black and white everybody Everyone knows. So that's the, and then, but if I say I grew up in Highland Park, they, I get another group of people go, oh, wow, you could have gone to New Trier. So imagine that, that experience has kind of led me to being the comic, I guess, that I am. I'm a bit of a, you know, I can change characters. I, I do was voices, just thinking about that. Yeah. Impersonate people. And uh, that and be survival. a chameleon. Oh, sorry. Wait. Yes, that's exactly what I was looking for. I mean, you right. know, one of the, the reasons that I'm a comic was even as a kid, I used to find ways to make it fun. Yes. So, yes. I mean, it's now that I can look back and see that I was always that comic. That's always what I did. I don't think I knew it at the time. But, you know, the story that I tell in my act on the South Side of Chicago was I fought a girl, you know, because I knew if I didn't, they were going to pick on me every day. Turns out she knocked me out. So that's the joke, right? And the joke was also that she didn't like the way I talked. I used to say she thought I, um, I, I never said uh, that I sounded white because nowadays that sounds like you're saying that sounds better. Mm. But the reality was I did sound like a white girl, not necessarily a more intelligent girl. I sounded like a white girl at the time. And that had to be scary for a nine-year-old black kid whose parents hated white people because yes. Chicago was very segregated. But imagine that. Imagine I, yeah. like a black girl look like, and she's looking at someone who looks like her, but is talking like what she perceives as to be the enemy, right? Yes. That's got to be terrifying at nine. Because I was nine. They were nine. They're kids. I'm a kid. But I didn't know it. 
you know, but they were terrified of it. So on some level, I had to act different. I had to talk like them in order for them to feel more comfortable. So that's the humor is, is when I tried to s- sound a certain way. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Or, and then I try, I even tried to walk. I tried to, what I thought was a black walk. I used to pimp walk. That's not a black walk. I was pimp walking. Right, right, right. Well, and this also gets, but this gets also into class, you know, and yeah. like, and and how much, how oh, much, yeah. So like, performing sexuality on stage. What do I wear? Performing, you know, class. How do I sound? How do I walk? Like all of these things. Like how do I belong and yet still be an individual? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, it it almost worked itself out quite naturally. Is that we then moved again to the south suburbs of Chicago, which was economically the utopia of black and white relationship. Where so was that? So here I am going into what was Park Forest, home of Flossmore area, which is the south suburbs of Chicago. And I'm acting like I think I got to act black. And the black kids and the white kids were like, you are crazy. We just, we're all the same. We're, we all are... But as a kid, I didn't understand this. I can look back at it now and going, this is what happens when economically we're all on the same plane and it's not this argument of who's getting what more. That I just lived that naturally. So I can look back at it and see it and you come, you either come out of that okay or you come out of it funny or you come out of it, you, you know, but my, my survival was comedy. Okay. So you get to, you move to this suburb in the South Side. Mm Mm-hmm. And is that because someone got a job? Like, how did you guys move to that suburb? So we moved to the south suburb because my mom, my mom just, it's usually based on a man, I think. It was another guy. And he was out there. (laughs) And so, and then she had a house out there and she was moving on. So this was her, because when she moved to the south side, that was in her parents' home. So the south suburbs was her getting her independence and moving on and 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 meeting another guy too. And so from there after she said to me, "I'm sorry I did this to you moving in and out of school." She under she said, "I feel horrible that I did this to you." She always sat me down. She said, "I feel so bad about it." Wow. Yeah, and so she said, "So for high school, one thing I don't want to do is take you out. I want you to have your four years in high school at the same school with the same friends." I don't want to disrupt that. And what was that like? It was nice. I mean, it was it was interesting because I was able to finally find my group. Yeah. The longer yeah. you stay somewhere, the more chances you are to find your your groove and your rhythm with things. And and then after that, I went to college. I went to University of Illinois, and then I went got my master's at Syracuse. What did you get your master's in? Theater. Okay. Mm-hmm. So so when did you sort of turn to acting as a profession? Well, I turned to acting early on, but I didn't. No, meaning meaning in high school. Yeah, in high school, I did. I was like a pick a little, talk a little lady. In uh, how could I not guess this? Music man. (laughs) Pick a little, talk a little. Pick a little, talk a little. Choo choo choo. Talk a lot. Pick a little more. Balzac. So so that was that was in high school, and then I did choir because I was always doing things. So for me, escape. Right, I was always like that kid that had to express herself. So. You know, I was always doing, uh, here's a funny story for you. This is really where it started. Okay, I love this. So a teacher asked me to be a part of the speech team in high school. So speech team means you take one story, like a prose, and you just tell it, and you act it out. It was really students who wanted to be actors, auditioning and doing monologues, but we didn't know that. It was speech team. You had a book, you had an opening, you had a certain way you're supposed to read prose, a certain way you do it in the speech team. 
my story was Huckleberry Finn, and I was Huckleberry. And I was like, I, and I had that monologue where he had to decide betwixt two things. Jim, you know, and, you know, think about these poor teachers. They probably didn't know what to do. Seeing this black girl doing Huckleberry Finn, they had to be politically correct at the time when that wasn't time. You know, <laughs> they just had to be quiet. <laughs> they were like, how do we review this? It's great. It's just great. <laughs> <laughs> they were probably very confused. And I never thought any, you know, what's funny. I never thought anything about, you know, you hear about them pulling that book from the bookshelves and out of the schools. I'm going to tell you that story is where my drama really started, where my acting, you know, because I connected with the fact that beside the fact that race was playing in this story, he knew that Jim was his friend as a, now, I could be, as a kid, maybe my analysis of that was wrong, but that's what I felt at the time. That's what stood out to me. And so that was an important story to tell. And that's really where it began. And then I did, um, also did speech in my eighth grade graduation. That was another place that I didn't know. It was me practicing performing. And then I did the graduation speech. And it was, yeah, it just went from there. It was always a place for me. I love also that Huckleberry Finn, you acted like you were just focusing on the story. And I think that's like the most important thing one can do as a stand up is just to. Focus we're losing on a story. part of that, too, right now, you know, with some of the political energy that's in the air on both sides. I'm yes. not saying even on one side, on I'm all saying sides. on all sides. Yeah. We're starting to lose the ability to just look at the heart of a story, you know, and where there's some arguments that are very valid. There's also, the, I can't deny that that experience and the fact that I had the energy of a child. I was looking at it from a child's eyes. I was not looking yeah. at it from any other way, but just that I connected to this story of friendship between two, uh, two boys, really, right? Huckleberry? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so... I went the whole hog. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it comes full circle with me, Katie, always. <laughs> and so, okay, so another part of this is, like, you and I had spoken earlier about how, like, Amy Schumer was so confident from the beginning and it was sort of mesmerizing. And I felt that way about her and I felt that way about Aziz Ansari, for example, in other ways, because everyone I knew took a long time to get where they were going. Chappelle, you've been on Chappelle show, you know, like. He was funny at 14. He was cocky and confident at 14. But he didn't get his own show until 32. Yeah. So, like, the, the tide had turned where people became quite successful. Very quickly. Very quickly. For, for me, I will say that, like, my confidence did not come until later in life. It just – later in life being my 30s and 40s. But in Hollywood, that's, like, 183. <laughs> when did you feel like you came into your own? Oh, I'm still coming into my own. I don't think you – I you know, there's a place right now where I feel pretty good about it. You know, where I'm starting to look back at, you know, how I didn't know how to write a joke or how I wouldn't approach things correctly as a comedian. What does that mean? Like, you know, when you're young, starting out, you just want jokes and you start writing jokes, but you don't really know how to tell them. So, you know, and especially right now, a lot of comedians are getting into this trap where they feel like they have to be political comedians or they have to say talk about what's going on, but they don't have the skills yet. I, I've learned that even I have 
the inability at times to listen because I already have my point of view already in my head. So sometimes being quiet, even though women are quiet most of the time, but sometimes listening people, listening to people, you get a lot of information and you'll learn some things. And so that is what I've been doing before, just jumping on on the plate of this is what I got to talk about, you know. I'm hearing a lot. There's a lot of conversations out there. Yeah, but I imagine you're around a lot of because you're in the thick of the comedy scene. Like I imagine you're around a lot of people who there's a lot of backlash against women speaking out, even though it's really just the beginning. The backlash hasn't started, but we we're concerned that it. What is the backlash? That's yeah. the conversation I had today. Is what will be the backlash? Will it be back? Will the backlash be? We hire more women and then there's no men around and men start claiming like reverse type of discrimination. <laughs> you know, you're not hiring us because we're men. You know, is that the backlash? I've already seen that. Yeah. Yeah. I've already so, seen a lot of people uh, complain about that. Let me let me ask you a question about you perform all over the world internationally. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me like is it a what is the club scene like in you know England or Scotland or um, when you're in Canada you know what are the differences? Well, I've performed in South Africa, Glasgow, Ireland, Edinburgh. I don't know why I skipped Edinburgh. I went to Ireland. That's amazing. Edinburgh, and uh, I've also been to Australia twice, both times in Australia for a month each time, and I was also. My first trip overseas was in the Netherlands. Yeah, Amsterdam, Rotterdam. Yeah, and Alaska. Sorry. So, are there differences? <laughs> if it, you know, are there differences Alaska's if any? Most of these places, country. in fact, all of them speak English. So, uh, are there differences in humor or anything like that? Are there certain jokes that you don't do when you're there? Certain jokes you definitely do when you're there? Well, when you're in, I mean, it's been a while, but South Africa definitely comedy was new because that was about maybe 10 years ago that I was in South Africa. Well, and laughing in general was new there. Yeah, so comedy, yeah, laughing. There were only five white people in the front row, and that was interesting. That was a good joke to do. (laughs) Uh, You know what I'm saying? But it was the show was called Blacks Only, you know? So that all that stuff was very real there. So one of the things I noticed is, universality really works in places like that. You know, you, you do have to be careful because their their assumption about Americans is that we don't know nothing. Yeah. So once we start talking, we have we do have to be careful because they're already angry. So I stayed away from politics. Okay. That was going on. That's just for me. I just stayed away from what I didn't know because yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. I mean, when I was in Ireland. You I focus more on relationships. I focused on, you know, what was universal was growing up black and then moving, growing up in a white neighborhood, moving to a black neighborhood. The sort of bully story, the fish out of water story yeah. was universal no matter where I went. Everyone connected with it. And it, it didn't matter if I was talking about Chicago. They got that in South Africa. They got that in Ireland. They got that in Scotland. Even more so in Scotland. Scotland was one of my favorite places you know, because the it was blue collar and white. And uh, I was like, I was worried that they would get me. Not only did they get me, they got me on a level that like, like in South Africa, it was like performing for, for people who really get oppression. Yes. I mean, especially in Glasgow, it's very like, they don't, they don't mess around, you know, they get it. You got to give them the comedy like, 
it's it's a real audience. Well, I mean, it makes perfect sense because, and again, this is a stereotype, but I feel like, you know, there's a reason blacks had storytelling and that's due to slavery and not owning paper, literally. Right. <laughs> and yeah. so this was the way to pass on legacy. But Scotland and Ireland are also really well known for their, their storytelling. Mm-hmm. And they also face tremendous conflict. And I think it's also just imperative to see how these things are about power and that like race and class and gender, all of these things are just ways to express it. Mm-hmm. And they come from such a passionate place. There's a lot in common there. I think with Ireland and black storytelling, there's a lot in, in common there. That's why when you see like, what's the Irish dancing? Jigs? Yeah, that the, the, what was that called? The River dance? River dance or whatever, yeah. <laughs> I feel so bad for every Irish person right now. They just like collectively like but winced. They were like, we wanted to like this Jewish woman and that. this black woman, and then we couldn't anymore because what they referred to Irish well, dancing as River dance. More. But the thing is, it's like <laughs> the Irish dancing that you're doing, it's, you know, what's funny is I connected to it because we have what's called stepping, which is a black fraternities do. And it's the same. They do it actually in the river dance. They show the black steppers and they show, it's there's something very linked there. But I auditioned for a play called Dancing at Lunasa. You ever heard of Dancing at Lunasa? No. Without any thought. Again, this was me like doing Huckleberry Finn. I auditioned for it. One of the women in that play Without any thought about the fact that it was an Irish play, it was about Irish women dancing around a table, I had no clue. I thought I would just get it because I was good. I remember the teacher, that was the first time that that the teacher, she looked at me, Lizzie, she goes, when I close my eyes, (laughs) I can see you playing this role. And I was like, what do you mean? What are you talking about closing your eyes? (laughs) I didn't understand. And then it, it was really like, oh, you're saying that you want to traditionally cast this. You want to make it really Irish. Oh. But I thought to myself, there was something I connected to here again that was so universal. You know? So, yeah, you know, it always comes back to that thing of storytelling that for me, no matter where you go, we all connect to it. And I think that's why I was traveling and still travel and why people from other countries do they see, they tell me all the time for some reason i can understand you yes and they say you don't have an accent they always say that to me i go oh that's cuz i move so much so i move from one neighborhood to the, and then i move from chicago to new york so you know i still have a bit of chicago in me you'll hear that just now I yeah did, you know but when you move like that like if you know godfrey the comedian like yes. we sound very non regional you can't tell. You sound like NPR hosts. Yeah, because that's just... <laughs> yes, that is true, Katie. But that is because we travel... I really do. The combination of non-regional is from Chicago to New York. And it goes back to what we were talking about of you being a chameleon mm-hmm. and being able to fit into all these different roles. And I think that's why you've been able to cross over to acting because it is hard for a lot of comedians to do so, although you started in it, so that helps. I also wanted to ask you about your podcast. Yeah, Friends Like Us, I started about three years ago. And it's been a great show to do because it showcases, there it's me sort of taking myself out and showcasing these women of color who do comedy. When I was coming up, you know, not to knock down what's happening now, but you really had to be funny. <laughs> and there was no room, Absolutely. there was no conversation about diversity 
And I wish there were, but there wasn't. So for people to like you, it was really based on funny. I mean, I had a mob room that I used to run. You had to be funny. The trope of, oh, we only do funny is funny. And the only reason we are not casting more women, more women of color, people of color, is because they're just not funny is not true. Or they, they don't exist. They all existed. I mean, and so I'm so happy, though, that the difference now is that all these women are saying, you know what? All right. It's my time that I need to just take it upon myself because no one else is going to do this for me. No, and the what they were holding us, uh, you know, the the things that were set up against us for funny, you know, why they didn't think uh, we were funny. That's the question. Why did you not think we were funny? Is it because you didn't relate to it because it wasn't in your neighborhood or because it wasn't the stereotype of what you thought we were? You know, a lot of times like Godfrey and I talk about this. Why Godfrey, Godfrey, you know, who is hysterical, you know. And he should be doing toothpaste commercials with me. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't just put him on. I would do both of us in the toothpaste commercial because we both have great teeth. You do? Oh, yeah. my goodness. And, but the thing, I always thought of him as like a black Superman. He's so beautiful. Yeah. But the thing is, is that. Which is exactly how you thought of me, too. You weren't in that picture when I said it? Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, Godfrey doesn't fit into a stereotype. At all. Yeah. I don't fit into a stereotype. No. You can't put me in any category. They don't really still to this day know what to do with that because you have to imagine there are writers who are writing stories that fit their ideas of what they think black people are. It was completely subjective. I often felt when it was women, I would say, are they scared of seeing themselves in that position? Is that why? Oh, when women weren't booking other women? Yeah. Yeah, I think, well, that is a loaded conversation, girl. <laughs> I'm going to just say that. But yes. I think there's there's so many reasons why women don't use other women. And there's a, what did Taylor Swift say? There's a special hell for them. I think it was Madeline Albright. Oh, she just <laughs> used it? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Look at me going with Taylor Swift. So, um, yeah, it's, it is tough. Look, I have nothing else to say. That's what I say when I ain't got no words. <laughs> Yeah, you know what, Katie, it's tough. <laughs> well, and it takes doing podcasts like Friends Like Us where women are helping each other come up. Amy Schumer helps, you know, other females. And she helped me. She put me in train wreck and women who kill. You know, it's funny. I never done a half hour. I've never. Comedy Central never gave me a half hour. I think it goes back to what I was saying before. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Comedy Central never gave me. Of gatekeepers not, not yeah. giving women a chance. Oh, oh God. Yeah. yeah. That's that's the nut I can't talk about right now. And, the, and there's also Netflix. You want to look at how many specials of black women. You know what they'll say? They'll say, well, we got Leslie. You know what they're say, saying right now? Well, you got Tiffany Haddish. Yeah. These are just one. You know, it, there's so many is my point. Totally. And it just takes not being lazy to know that and to do the work. No one's being really, truly innovative right now. There's no one like going out to the clubs and, you know, really looking for that raw talent right now. It's just this lazy seeking of a brand and a trend from Instagram. It's sad. So... That's why when I bring these women on the podcast, right, for this full in-depth conversation, we talk about hot topics, we talk about what's going on in the scene. When I go and I do a live show and they come in the audience from that podcast comes and tells me, I got to know Super Girl World because of you. 
She's an amazing comedian. I went out and I saw Godfrey and he, you know, yelled at my boyfriend for talking too much. It was great. <laughs> you know, or I went out to go see Zainab Johnson, you know, and yes. she is fantastic. And Marina, I remember hearing Khalees Hawkins on your show for the first time and I followed her career since. Yeah. Could you imagine if that was never there? These are people who wouldn't be out there. you got to know these names. Well, I hope that my listeners go and check out Marina Franklin. You can see her live. Go to her website as well to find out where she's touring because she tours all over the world. MarinaFranklin.com. And you can also listen to her podcast. And I can't wait to be the token Jew, white person, whatever you want to call me. Well, once a month we do have like a guy or someone that's white, someone that's not fitting that, you know, like a period. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes we have two, and that's like our heavy flow. Let me be a part of your heavy flow or light <laughs> flow. But I'm I'm so thrilled to have you on, and I, I can't tell you how hysterical you are. I have one last question, which is, so I know that you love pot. Have you ever smoked? Hi, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for asking. Marina, I've been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so, so much. No, thank you, cutie. I want to thank my guests, Marina Franklin and Hannibal Burris. I want to thank Gramercy Theater, as well as my incredible band, Chris Shockwave Sullivan, Andrew Jelly D. Bancroft, as well as Robbie Jost, who came and played hooky from Dear Evan Hansen to join us, alongside Smuta, who you may recognize from The Gong Show, and Camille Harris, our incredible illustrator for the evening, Ella Trujillo, and again, Lady Rizzo, and Slate. Thank you, Slate. Jessamine Molly, Faith Smith, and Daniel Schrader, thank you for all that you do. And thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Katie Lazarus. Hope you have a good one. Now, rewind the show, y'all. Everybody back up. It's time for the Employee of the Month. Rip, wrap up. They'll come out and then they'll hold their plaques up. It's time for the first guest. Rip, rip, wrap up. Cause number one's career is here to flourish Not the cannibal, the funny man Hannibal Burris As a dentist, as a bee, you always rock, dude As they say, same dude, different costume Even this Terry Gross audience felt ya Even if they never slept with someone for shelter You like fucking well Hannibal has a mattress But sorry ladies, he already left So everybody hold those invincible plaques up Give it up for the employee of the month wrap up now We'll drink 